This is Software Defined Survival, where we talk to AVIT professionals and software developers to find out how to leverage software to reinvent ourselves and the way we do business. We listen to their stories and ask for advice and tactics on how to survive and thrive in a software-defined world. Today on Software Defined Survival. All of us are kind of trying to find our way in this new industry, and we're all wondering what we're going to be doing in three, five, ten years from now. Hey, uh, recurring revenue is an important thing that all of us should try to get in on, these recurring revenue streams. And that is a difficult, if not impossible, task in our industry. They'd have all these platforms that would do programming for you, and it was easy to think at that time, wow, they're taking our jobs, right? It would be wrong to resent that. I mean, that's just the way things go. And I try to look at that as sort of, well, what's the challenge and opportunity in that? Mine, Domin and Helen, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Software Defined Survival. My name is Patrick Murray, and today's guest, I met first at an AMX training room in Horsham, Pennsylvania, many, many moons ago. I'm guessing it was around the year 2000. And for all of that time, he has been founder and CTO of Damiano Global Corporation, an independent control system and audio DSP programming company. And his company has developed AV management software called DGNet that, in my mind, kind of looks like a software-defined solution to a hardware-defined problem. So please welcome to the show, Frank Damiano. Frank, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. Is there anything about that introduction that you'd like to correct or expand upon? Uh, you are right. It is sparse. It is sparse, but I have been doing the same thing for, what, 18, 19 years now? Uh, so I think, we say, I think we say we're innovating um, you know, technology and you know, trying to lead the path. But uh, yeah, essentially been doing the same thing for 19 years. Nice. Um, so... I, I like to find out the origin story uh, of where people came from, like how you got into AV, because nobody really grows up saying, I want to do AV when I grow up. So, so how did you wind up in that training room that fateful day in, in, in Horsham? I'll tell you. And, and I didn't realize we actually met. Yeah. We've actually physically met. Yeah, we spent the back. weekend in, in access training together. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Way back in, geez. So, you know, that was just after I, uh, left the military. So my story, actually, I had nothing whatsoever to do with uh, AV. And I was stationed in Germany. And when I uh, basically left the military, came back to the US, and I had all these ideas about what I might do. I was talking to venture capitalists. I had this idea about a hardware portal kind of concept. You could put these kind of pedestal sync style computer terminals and bus stations and um, train stations, etc., public libraries. And uh, we'd use targeted advertising to fund the ability for you to check your mail. And it sounds so ridiculous now to actually even say that out loud, but you know, 2000, you know, we didn't have smartphones and that was actually would have been a really valuable service. So I kind of had that on the brain when I got back from Germany, I thought I was going to do that, but I was catching up with everyone in my life. And I met a friend who wanted me to take me to lunch and tell me all about how happy he was to get back in the industry he came from, which was AV. So I knew nothing about this. And we go to that uh, bar Cheers in Boston. 
and uh, we're, we're eating and he's basically explaining to me all the trouble he had finding people that could program this stuff called Crestron. And I was like, wow, I have no idea what that is. But, um, you know, why don't you show me a catalog? He knew I was good with computers. So after lunch, we went up to his office and he shows me this catalog. And it's like, you know, I don't really know anything about this, but I do know computers. And I can tell you this is literally decade-old stuff that they're value-added reselling. So um, although I might not know anything about it, I'm pretty confident I can learn it quickly. So I basically paid my own way to go down to Crestron and Rockley and take the uh, introduction to programming class, that three-day class they used to do at that time that gave you a little bit of everything. Yeah. And uh, I came back to Boston, opened up the Yellow Pages and started calling all the AV dealers in Boston saying, hey, I just took the Crestron class. And, uh, you know, do you have any programming? And the interesting thing was, is that uh, almost to a T, everyone was like, well, we're pretty all set with our Crestron programming. And uh, one company said, well, can you do AMX? And I'm like, AM what? What are you talking about? <laughs> so kind of rolled my eyes. And, and I, I can't believe I actually said this, but I said, give me a month and, um, and, I'll, and I'll do it. So that must have been where we met because I went down, you know, I did some research, found out where AMX was, went down to Horsham and um, took all the classes they had in a month. And uh, my business kind of was born from there and been doing the same thing ever since. Wow. That's a really cool story. So there was this whole industry you knew nothing about and um, you saw some opportunity there and uh, really took the initiative, busted out the yellow pages, called AV dealers and and they told you the path. They told you what they needed. And at that time, it was AMX programming. And uh, what's your business like now, just for a little comparison? I think we crunched the numbers in 2017, 60% of our revenue came from Crestron programming. Wow. And how many programmers do you have on staff? Uh, as far as audio DSP and programming, there's six of us. Wow. That's impressive. So starting as a one-man shop and growing to, uh, to six programmers, I'd, I'd say that's, that's some good growth in, in, in our industry. Yeah. And so, then six administrative people. So it's kind of well. like uh, <laughs> in the military, they said there was for every person out in the field, you'd have to have 10 people. Um, back in garrison supporting them. And I, I can tell you in this business, for every programmer you have, you need at least one admin support person behind them. Absolutely. I, I see a lot of value in that just to uh, so they could focus on the work and um, not deal with yeah just the simple things like scheduling and travel and, and things like that and making sure the job site is ready. So what was your most successful AV project and uh, and what made it special for you? You know, actually, having listened to your podcast, I've given this some thought, and um, I can answer that pretty quickly. It was a job in New York City for HSBC, and this this job had all. It had it all. It had the trifecta, the hat trick. You had kind of a cool project, right? It was with a cool client with a lot of history, and it was with a legendary integrator, HAA, Harry Joseph and Associates. No way. I used to work for him. Yeah, what a cool guy, right? Yeah, um, I it's the I'm actually kind of sad. It's the only project we ever did together, um, and I don't think it was because I wasn't good. It was just I think he was kind of transitioning at the time, and this was he had programming resources on staff. This was just kind of a larger project. He needed to bring someone in from the outside, but remember it fondly in his in his hush buttons. 
So there's yeah. also a new product that okay. I've never actually seen or used um, a lit microphone. He's the guy, as I'm sure you know, that kind of invented the halo ring around a microphone. Um, and that's pretty common today. But at the time, you know, he was the he's the one that did it. And it was a user interface. So it was a button and you, it was this whole complex things of wiring and it used those kind of GPIO interfaces for the Crestron or AMX interface. But uh, what was cool about this job was this building had to be like 200 years old almost. So it's this old historic banking building and it was one of those executive briefing center floors. So they got funding or whatever to literally just rip everything out and redo it. So they were redoing the entire floor all at once and it had catering and a little auditorium and receptionists and all these little breakout rooms and conference areas. So what was cool about it was um, it was just an exceptional work of integration where Harry designed the stuff very meticulously. You know, it was all proven, well-designed stuff. So no one conference room or anything we did was very impressive, but the collection of them together was the most tightly integrated group of rooms we ever did because um, all the technology basically worked together seamlessly. The reception desk had a panel that would VNC. It was an AMX system, so it was a real simple thing to program the reception panel to simply VNC into the different rooms because it was the same size. That's cool. So they could literally see the, you know, the feedback of everything, control the rooms. But this is one of the coolest things. We put a touch panel in the kitchen. So we put this 12-inch touch panel in the kitchen that just had a tic-tac-toe board and nine buttons for the nine different uh, conference rooms. And if people wanted a Pepsi or something, they'd press a service button, a service request button in the room on the touch panels. And it would, it would, the panel would beep light up and start flashing the room number. So it's probably the most expensive like waiter call system ever installed, but it worked and people loved it. And yeah, I would look back on that. And it was one of those jobs where you never had to go back. You know, Harry knew what he was doing. I knew what I was doing. And, you know, we, we banged this thing out, had a happy customer, never had to hear from him since, but I think of it often. Excellent. Wow. You're bringing up a lot of memories. Uh, that's really where I cut my teeth in, in AV, uh, with, uh, yeah, Joe Sicoli was kind of my mentor showing me the ropes, how all this stuff works together. And of course, Harry, I still keep in touch with him once in a while. So I'll have to tell him about this story. He'll be, he'll be happy to hear about that. And, um, yeah, when a project is well-planned and you just kind of plug the pieces together and everything fits well, it really doesn't matter how big it is. It, um, the planning is really everything. So I think there's a lot to learn in that. What kind of um, changes have you seen over the years that have had really the biggest impact on on your programming business? Oh, wow. Jeez, if I could answer that. Um, I think it's sort of the rise of these uh, quote-unquote programmerless systems. And the change actually is not what I thought. You know, when I got into this in 2000, that's when they started talking about AVIT convergence. And, and of course, I had enough knowledge to be pretty comfortable with that. So I thought, well, I'm getting into this at the right time, right? I mean, uh, I have no problem with the convergence of AV and IT. And I think that's always kind of kept me a little ahead. And you were worried as, you know, AMX came up with things, um, you know, those, those programming languages and they'd have, um, what was the one, you'd have to buy it on a disk. They came before RPM. Or before RPM, I do not recall. Yeah, and um, 
crestron had system builder and hmm. they'd, they'd have all these platforms that would do programming for you. And it was easy to think at that time, wow, they're taking our jobs. Right. But they weren't. And hmm. it was a matter of a rising tide floats all boats. So it just sort of kind of uh, grew the whole industry. And there was always that need for custom programming. And that's still kind of where we're at today. Um, where even though more and more people are using that stuff, they still need the Patrick Murrays and the BBCs and, you know, the Steve Greenblatt's of the world to go and do these custom systems. But, um, you know, there's something a little different happening here. Now those programs are actually getting, uh, they're starting to do some interesting stuff. Like you look at Crestron with their AV framework and that uh, one-touch dialing. You know, that's easier said than done, right? You know, you got to sure. know JSON programming. Um, there's a lot of little details and integration around, and they just build that into it. I got to, you know, I got to give Crestron props for that. I mean, they're really pushing, they're raising the bar with that, saying, hey, this is kind of the expectation all people should have um, with these systems. But then there's also the uh, this pressure from outside the industry. So whereas through that whole time, the tide was rising and all our boats were rising with it, now the uh basically the you know the ocean's just getting wider there's all these different players and people jumping in um so you know what i see happening now that does concern me is you have a whole host of players that are coming in you know so you have kramer cloud control which is really good actually i mean i think if if i was going to make a cloud control system the latest incarnation of kramer cloud control that it's it's a good way to do it you know they really they really know what they're doing um barco has overture you know um and even at lonus getting into the picture you know and then there's logitech and all these other players and that stuff is really i think eating into all our lunches and it would be wrong to resent that i mean that's just the way things go and i try to look at that as sort of, well, what's the challenge and opportunity in that for us? And that's where PGNet Watchdog was born, was the intersection of all those kind of pressures and in, in industry moves. Interesting. So I, I, I like that lead-in. And um, I think it's it's kind of obvious that the AV industry as a whole has just been growing. And there's a need to, to fill those gaps, right? They all can't be these super custom, uh, highly complicated projects. Customers are asking for simple solutions that um, can be installed quickly. So that's the reason for configurators and like these one touch systems, that's what customers want. So that's what gets delivered. And as the industry grows, and of course, um, this trend for one manufacturer to deliver a complete solution, there's lots of different uh, uh, products coming online and different ways to approach things. And I like the way you said, you know, you could view that as competition, which, which it is in some sense, but you could also see an opportunity in there to um, to offer your own thing because it is no longer just Coke and Pepsi, right? It's no longer just two big manufacturers uh, to choose from. There's lots of different ways to approach it. So tell us about your approach. Tell us about DGNet. What, what makes it different? What kind of problems does it solve? Well, a few years ago, we started looking at it and, and we were watching what was going on in the industry. And the idea was, well, what can we do to sort of add our verse, if you will, you know, not to get all Wall Whitman on you, but, um, and we had a customer that came and asked to say, Hey, um, could you set up an RMS server in the cloud for us? And, and like, we could resell these managed systems to churches. And 
that's probably the fourth time a customer had come and asked me about doing that. And the first three times it asked me over the years, it was just a terrible idea. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I don't want to do this. And these are the reasons why. And th they were good reasons at the time, you know, most notably because a lot of people were trying to do it for existing systems and they didn't appreciate the complexity. You know, this wasn't simply plug and play to say, let me, you know, stick a USB drive in your AMX frame or your Crestron frame. And now suddenly it's going to be compatible with RMS and Fusion and all these things. Um, but he kind of came at it from a different angle as just management and monitoring as a service. In some cases, for people that didn't even have control systems, where the business itself was managing monitoring, and suddenly I just looked at it in a whole different way, and it's like, aha, this actually is uh, it's a good idea. So we kind of looked into it, and we tried, uh, you know, we tried the traditional approach. AMX was pretty cool. They just kind of gave us RMS and said, you know, we like what you're doing and, um, you know, we want to support you. So that was the first one we had up and running. Crestron was pretty difficult about the whole thing. They were kind of like, well, it's a really good idea. Let our lawyers take a look at that. <laughs> and um, and then after like three to six months of hounding them, literally, I had that. They wouldn't even sell me the software. Um, they kind of that was when they redesigned their whole approach to Fusion. Uh, the timing, I thought, on that was pretty pretty suspect. And Extron was uh, kind of like AMX. They were like, oh, that's a really good idea, except our stuff doesn't work in the WAN. You know, it's, it's, it's land-based, not WAN-based. So it's like, okay, we're not off to a very good start here. Um, but, you know, we stuck with it and we thought, well, hey, this is the age of the cloud, right? Um, what if we did our own thing? And I think Three years ago, I probably would have had no business dreaming about doing something like that. But, you know, you get good people on your team, you kind of management style. It was actually my guys that came to me, believe it or not, and said, we see what you're trying to do. And, and you know, um, we think we might be able to do this on our own. I actually didn't want to ask them to do that. I thought it was too heavy a lift. But, um, you know, thankfully, uh, they liked me. And uh, we kind of put together this team and we started working at it and we built this whole asset monitoring platform in the cloud from the ground up. So we didn't just like spin up a server in the cloud. We use the latest cloud technologies like, you know, AWS Lambda. Um, we use Google Cloud Platform is what we built it on. And we actually using Python code, we just started writing all these series of microservices and we came up with our own asset management platform from scratch. So uh, it's very unique. It actually has uh, uh, very secure. It has a dual key authentication scheme. It has its own custom API. And the idea is anything can talk to it. So it's like in this world where there's more and more people coming to the table, why not just make something that can help everybody? So we wrote, uh, we wrote the platform. Then we wrote a series of modules for AMX, Crestron, and Xron to say, well, hey, here's modules right out of the bank that you can just load into your program and now your system is now part of Watchdog. And you can uh, put custom hooks in there for things like projector life and you know what input is your display on, the kind of typical stuff you do with an RMS or Fusion installation. Actually, you know, a part of this research, I went to one of your classes where you did your IBM Cloud. Um, oh, the remote management class, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I actually took that. I thought uh, I thought there was some competition there, but then I realized uh, we would like going in completely different directions. We were trying to build a whole platform, and we have. So ours, our platform is scalable to the quintillions, okay. and that means like everyone on Earth could have millions of devices connected to it. They put the module in, 
they compile the, the module with their keys, and now their processor comes up in the right place in Watchdog, and they can actually see what's going on. With Crestron, we actually had to work the hardest. Crestron, it took hundreds and hundreds of hours to get those just the initial version of the module going. We had to write it in a whole combination of, of course, simple, simple plus, simple sharp. But at the end of the day, we have these plug-in drop-in modules. So you can take kind of any processor, you go to our site, you download the module for that processor, you put your keys in it, compile and load it into an available slot. And it's kind of like, uh, so if you take a DMPS, for instance, you put this drop-in program, and then it's like DMPS tools in the cloud. So we can actually read the IP table. There's a lot of stuff you can do actually without putting anything in the core program. So anything that can be done through uh, terminal commands or through the API, we do. And then if you want to do something a little more advanced to say like those projector hours, something more fusion-like, you put an Ethernet into system communication link in between the two, you have your main program talk to our module, and then you can just add more and more attributes. And then from there, there's reporting and notification, all the kind of things people would want to do in an advanced RMS or fusion installation. Pretty cool stuff. Um, there's a bunch of stuff you talked about that I want to touch on. I don't know if we'll get to all of it. I think the importance of a good team really can't be underestimated. And I like, I like the fact that they came to you and said and appreciated what you were trying to do and came up with a solution. I think that's a sign of a, a really great team um, when people are coming to you with ideas that, uh, that you could execute on. Um, then APIs you mentioned. So we, we live in an API world. But that really hasn't, that message hasn't gotten to AV yet. And uh, that kind of ties into how much, how, diff, how much difficulty you had dealing with. I mean, you mentioned Crestron. I'm sure the other ones had their challenges as well. And um, all the hoops that you have to jump through to expose very normal things to an API. I think uh, there's a lot of improvement that AV manufacturers could do. Uh, I, I personally believe every product should just have an API and let us use the tools that we want to manage it. But the thing that, that really hit me was you mentioned you took the course, Remote Management Application Development, and you realized it was a different direction. And I think it's important to, to, to realize the distinction there. The course is to develop an application, right? So it's one, it's like a custom project almost. It's a, it's a dashboard that does what you want it to do. And what you're building is a platform that... Um, that is uh, scalable and can be used on many, many, many different types of installations. Do you have any thoughts on that, like a platform versus an application? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on that, and and I and I can say that that that's that's the the long and the short of it is that it's a platform versus in a, a single system or collection of systems. Yeah. We're not trying to compete with the AMX Crestron. Extron, uh, you know, Kramer or any control manufacturer. Watchdog has supplemental control built into it, but there can be up to a 15 second delay because of the security of the client server nature of it. So although you can control any system connected to Watchdog that you take the time to program a supplemental control element into, because the processor only checks in with Watchdog once every 15 seconds. It could take up to 15 seconds for it to get that command. So that's part of the whole high security nature of it. And for, for monitoring and asset management, supplemental control is great. 
But if you're trying, we're not trying to replace in-room control. We're not even trying to compete with that. What you were showing had the opportunity, at least you know, on, a, on a limited basis, on a room-by-room -room basis, to replace the touch panel, to really have a cloud real-time connections. But for us, that wasn't secure enough. But what we were trying to do, like my goal is to get DGNet Watchdog and missile silos, not to control the okay. missiles, of course, but everything yeah. else that you might have in a, you know, a real DOD, uh, NIPRA certified kind of solution that, I mean, there is a, uh, the base core security of Watchdog is TLS SSL. So on the same rate as like online banking, that's the, that's the base level. Then you add to it things like the dual key authentication. It's a very secure platform, but there's an additional level of security we can roll out when we reach that phase that would encrypt even the data within the SSL stream. And, you know, it would involve rolling codes. I mean, the NSA would be impressed. So it is, it's, it's a platform and, and you have to sort of pick your market. You have to know what, what are you going after? What aren't you going after? And what we're certainly not trying to replace anything going on that uh, Crestron or as we're, we're just trying to complement it. I mean, a big part of what we're doing, Patrick, is trying to kind of raise the bar for everybody. All of us are kind of trying to find our way in this new industry, and we're all wondering what we're going to be doing in three, five, ten years from now. So it was important when we developed Watchdog that we come up with something that could help lift everyone up. So, you know, we were seeing for years people should be using RMS Infusion and uh, Global Viewer, but they're not. It's only being used in very large installations. Um, and then even when they do get rolled out, how often does the integrator get looped into that, right? They should be the first people looped into it. Yeah. And, you know, so many times they're not. So we wanted to create something that just eliminated all the upfront hassles that are associated with these things like spinning up servers. Even with uh, Fusion Cloud, which is certainly moving in the right direction, they still need to spin up an Azure server for you. And that takes time. Um, with this, it's just monitoring.dgnet.cloud. Any device in the world that's ever going to talk to Watchdog is always going to use that URL. So it's just sitting there waiting for things to connect to it. So we thought, hey, if we eliminate the pain points, eliminate everything that's required to sort of spin this up and get this going, what I like to say is that it's good for one to whatever many systems. So if you have one important asset or you have, you know, something with Pride Swatterhouse Cooper with thousands and thousands of rooms and everything in between, I want to have a solution that could serve all of those people. So our system actually handles money too. We knew, hey, uh, recurring revenue is an important thing that all of us should try to get in on, those recurring revenue streams. And that is a difficult, if not impossible task in our industry. I mean, how many people actually get service contracts for programming? You know, hey, if you did your job, why do I need a service contract? Uh, but with something like Watchdog, I think we, we wanted to help integrators and programmers get into that managed services kind of platform so that what we're offering, we're making it really easy for either the integrator to pay for it or the end user. You know, you can put a credit card or an ACH information right in the platform. And we actually have built in this revenue, we call it a revenue share. And um, the default's 10%, but we can actually, in certain cases, increase that if the integrator is adding more value and wants the platform to handle the, the billing of that. And we'll actually ACH that revenue share every month to the integrator um, 
to give them that revenue stream and, and reduce the friction involved with all the paperwork of invoicing and this, that, and the other thing. So we're trying to give these tools to the industry to say, hey, you too can be part of this. So don't, I mean, our belief was that integrators would be able to sell more managed services with a tool like Watchdog. And that's a big part of our goal with this. That is a, a really impressive application that, that kind of turns the way business is normally done a little bit on its head. Um, AV is really slow to change, especially the way projects are done and the way they flow. But um, there's a whole rest of the world out there who just expects these kind of managed services that expects their appliances to be monitored and to be informed when, when things go wrong, before they go wrong. And, uh, and they're willing to pay for that because it is an ongoing service. And I like the way you, uh, you lay that out, that, that the payment schedule is, is built into the software and the invoicing is taken care of and revenue sharing and all of that. And that is really more of like a, a software as a service type of approach that, that again, I think um, we could use a lot more of in AV. Well, so, there's a lot of exciting stuff on the roadmap for that too. And like one of the things that we want to do is create a service provider kind of model. So it's, again, it's really hard for programmers to get in on that recurring revenue. Yeah. Uh, so what happens when a, you program a system for someone and then there's a problem? And there's always that sort of uncomfortable kind of period of time where you say, okay, I'll cover it under warranty, I'll cover it under warranty, I'll cover it under warranty. But when does it just become inappropriate to cover it under warranty? You know, and that varies from client and project and operational requirements. And everyone kind of has to make those difficult decisions on their own. One of sure. the things we wanted to do to help our our brethren, right, our peers, is to create the service provider role where you could register on the platform as a DGNet service provider. And a client, let's say you did programming for HSBC, and HSBC connects this to Watchdog. HSBC could basically select to add Patrick Murray as a service provider to their account. And anytime they got a notification of a problem, there'd be a button there that could say, hey, why don't you ask Patrick about this? And when they push that button, we could have, you know, you'd be, you'd be able to work with us to create your own terms and conditions. You know, maybe you have some kind of risk-free guarantee to say, okay, I'll take a look at it. And, you know, typically the way we do things is we have risk-free time and materials. We say, okay, you can engage us with just your word that you'll pay us if we produce a positive result. And this is what our rate will be. And so we might spend four to eight hours looking at a problem for someone, but we're only going to bill them for that time if we actually produce positive results. So let's say that's your terms and conditions. Well, screen would pop up. They'd agree to it. And, and not until they agree to it would you then be would forward that notification to you. You could do your magic, do your thing. You'd let the platform know the problem has been resolved. Once the client agreed, we could hit their billing account and basically instantly transfer you that money and help you now without a service contract still maintain an easy way of having a financial relationship with these customers that you've done business with over the years. That's a really cool idea. It's almost like a, a service marketplace, like, like an yes. app store except for service. Indeed. I like that approach. We need more <laughs> solutions like that because um, you know how it is. We run from project to project and uh, it's, it's this feast or famine type of a thing. And it's not exactly the best way to run a business long term. And um, having those kind of yeah uh, connections directly to your customers and, and ways for them to reach out directly to the person who, who should be working on it. I think that's, 
that's a really great way to use the technology today. So given all of your experience developing DGNet and, and having some customers and, and, and using it and coming out with this new approach, new products, do you have any advice for someone who might be interested in developing a new solution or a new approach and how they would go about raising awareness for it? Trade secrets, Patrick. Wow. We have to maintain something of competitive advantage, but that's just a snarky way of saying, I don't know. We, you know, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I'm honest, Patrick, we've just been following our hearts with this, you know, and, uh, and I'm not going to lie. Part of it is just hoping we're doing the right thing. I mean, it feels like we're doing the right thing. We're checking a lot of boxes, but probably just following your heart. Uh, you know, we felt um, this is something the industry needed. And there's definitely a build it and they will come philosophy. But I got to tell you, not as many people are coming as we had hoped or wanted. But that doesn't mean they won't. You know, these things take time. So we're still pretty new with it. We released it at uh, Infocon last year is when we kind of debuted DDNet Watchdog. So we kind of have a version 2.0 that we're going to be releasing at Infocon this year. And uh, we certainly spent our time and we're built, you know, we have some, we have some uh, good anchor clients and we're certainly doing some interesting things, but I kind of had this fantasy that the integration industry would come beating down my door saying, yeah, we, we want to be doing this. And we even have, you know, we all have, uh, we're programmers. Most people listen to this and we have those clients that just always come and look to us for these innovative solutions. And we have some clients that just have talked over and over, over the years about how they want to do managed services but they never really do anything that interesting. They say, oh, we know we need to be doing managed services. Well, something like Amex RMS and Fusion, these, you really can't do managed services without asset monitoring. So here I come up with this. We even offered branded versions to them where I've gone and I actually, you wouldn't believe how many domains I own. Um, things like uh, AVISPL World and Crestron.World and all these, you know, and I have all these domains in the bank just waiting for people to come and ask to do business with us. So I'd take an integrator and usually I'll, I'll buy a dot cloud version of the domain and, you know, we'll do all the networking and everything to resolve that to our platform to say, Hey, look at, we can give you this branded version of it. We can even put your logo on it. So it's like, how much more can we do for them? And, you know, I, I'm, it's sad to report, but a lot of people would see that and uh, they don't get excited by it. But yet these people profess to want to be offering managed services but they think they can do it on their own. And, uh, you know, all I can say with that is good luck. I mean, AVISPL is trying to do it with Symphony, and uh, they're actually doing some really interesting stuff with Symphony. And it's targeted, of course, to their highest revenue clients. Um, I actually like kind of what they're doing. It's kind of an IHIGI kind of approach. You know, they put a little device there, talks to the, uh, the Kodaks and, it, you know, queries for call quality and duration and all those kind of important statistics for those customers that spend the most money with AVISPL. But you go and ask the average person at an AVISPL office, they don't even know what Symphony is. Or <laughs> they've never been involved with an installation. So I don't know, sometimes, what do they say? The pioneers get the arrows? That's right, that's right. Patience, it's key. Um, nothing happens quickly. And uh, I've been through it myself. You come out with a new product, take it to a trade show. Everybody says, wow, that's cool. It's amazing, I wanna use it. And uh, getting people to actually execute on things is a real challenge. And I think it, it really, it needs to come from the end users. The end users, the customers have to ask for it somehow. But if they don't know about it, how could they ask for it? So you've got this I couldn't agree chicken more. egg solution. Uh, agree. The, the people that are most passionate about DGNet Watch, I've been end users. So our yeah. few anchor clients 
our end users that came to us and liked what we were doing. And that uh, that is definitely where the driving force is. So if there was you know, some advice that I could give to our, our industry peers, right, is to say, don't be afraid to approach end users. You know, I mean, and, and that's it's kind of the Pepperdash model, right? I mean, they kind of went from serving integrators to serving large integrators very quickly. And that, I believe, was a key part of their success. I hesitate to speak for them, but uh, yeah, it's certainly a model to be emulated. It's a conclusion I've come to. I think uh, if you're thinking long term and you have the patience, then then getting your own customers uh, to buy into your solution is is really the way to go. Just because, you know, an integration business has a different model than a software business does. So, are there any plans for the future that you'd like to share with us? Absolutely, hardware. We okay. actually at this Infocom will be releasing our first piece of hardware. We're going to call it a very interesting name, a PMU USB one. We thought we weren't going to be that kind of company that had boring model names, but you know, <laughs> there's kind of a reason you do that. Right. So, uh, and again, we're not trying to compete with control system manufacturers, but we actually, you know, we, we believe that our sort of niche here, what we're going to focus our attention on is this exceptional you know, monitoring and supplemental control. We want, we want to try to build DGNet Watchdog into the brand that people go to for just real high-end, exceptional monitoring and asset management. So you try to look for these things like, well, how do I measure, you know, power current or, you know, line voltage and things like that in the rack? So, you know, Crestron AMX make rack-mounted PDUs. But, you know, what if it's not a rack? What if it's just a display in a lobby or something like that? So we were trying to find these um, just single outlet devices that could monitor power. And there's a lot of stuff out there like Wemos and other things like that that you can put in your house, but nothing like really enterprise grade, if you can believe it. We tried some stuff from Triplight. So it actually led us to invest too much money into uh, developing our own little single outlet device that's powered through the USB bus. You can plug into any computer or Raspberry Pi, and uh, it'll actually measure the line voltage and current driver device. And we believe this is going to be the first of kind of a line of measurement devices that will help bring that extra level of monitoring control. Because take a display. I mean, this is a problem you run into with Fusion or RMS or any kind of asset management platform. You're monitoring the online offset, offline status of the device, and it goes offline. Right. And that begs the question, well, why did it go offline? Is it plugged in? Yeah. Is it plugged in? Did the network go out? You know, what's going on? And it turns out if you just simply monitor the power consumption of the device, you might be able to save a van roll. You could earn the right to call a customer and say, hey, uh, can you check if it's still there and plugged in? Right. Because right. I'm, I'm seeing a power monitoring device and I'm seeing that it's literally drawing zero amps, which means nothing's plugged into it. It's not even in standby. Um, so things like that. And, uh, you know, we're also trying to help people kind of like what you're doing, the sort of Raspberry Pi, the system on a chip kind of mantra, it, to say, you know, these things won't necessarily replace AMX, Crestron, or Xtron, nor, nor should they try, but it's a, good, it's a good supplement to it to say, well, let's complement your boardroom system by putting some of these smarter things like these little Raspberry Pis. When you, what, we have this little custom version of the Raspberry Pi Zero W. We've got a little case with the Watchdog logo on it. And we use uh, mini HDMI cable and the CEC protocol to basically monitor displays and report their 
status to watchdog. So you just stick this thing on the back of it. You can even put a little battery backup on the thing so and, and power it through the USB that most displays have these days. So without any additional plugs, you can actually uh, monitor it even if the power goes out and it'll still get the SOS message out and you add to that this piece of hardware we're releasing at Infocom and you really couldn't monitor that asset, whether it be a projector or a display or anything kind of like that. So hopefully we all will differentiate ourselves in a positive way and uh, you know, take off from there. I like that. I like that a lot. You mentioned uh, about um, replacing control systems. And I think this goes back to the beginning of this discussion when you were talking about a rising tide and um, the AV industry growing. There's just a lot of niches out there and there's no one solution that'll solve everything. And I really think, you know, when you talk about the cloud, they're talking about edge computing now. And that's kind of where I see things like the Raspberry Pi. It's not a replacement for anything, but it could sit on the edge of a network and do a little bit of logic for you before you pass things to the cloud or as a gateway or things like that. It's Absolutely. Just- that's, that's how we are going to be using it. And I have an interesting uh, kind of survey to uh, an informal survey results to share with you. Okay, so you know, master's it. class was a couple of weeks ago, right? Right. So I had in my in the pocket of my shirt a Raspberry Pi Zero W in our custom case with DIN rail mount. So we have we we kind of take this Raspberry Pi Zero and we really sex it up with this little DIN rail clip and then this little custom watchdog uh, emblem on the on the front of it. I mean, it, it it's impressive looking. Yeah. And I probably took that thing out of my pocket and showed it to twenty different people while at Masters, and only one person recognized what it was. <laughs> So I, I don't know to view that as opportunity or misguidedness, but I'm going to choose to, to look at that as opportunity. It, it's, it's the whole motto of this show. It's software defined. The hardware does not matter. And the Raspberry Pi comes up a lot because it's 35 bucks. So if we don't care where the software runs, then why not take something that's proven to be stable and is, is very affordable? Amen to that. There you go. So um, I think that's, a uh, good stopping point for today. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Uh, the best thing, just send an email to info at dgnet.cloud. Excellent. Thanks a lot for being on the show, Frank. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this discussion, if you liked what you've heard, if you want to hear more discussions like this, please go to iTunes, leave a review, subscribe to the show, send me a comment, get in touch with me somehow and let me know that you're out there listening and that'll motivate me to keep doing these shows and get more great guests on. So if you're driving or whatever, ask Siri to set something in your calendar to give you a reminder to go to iTunes and leave a review. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. For transcripts and show notes, go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com.